Welcome to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. I believe there's a rhythm and art in everything that we do. This is my journey about how I went from being a hip hop dancing engineer to a multifamily real estate investor. If you want to learn more about how you can start investing in real estate, stay tuned to learn from multifamily real estate investors and hear how they found their rhythm and created their own sound investments. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Koo, and I'm on the journey to go from the hip-hop dancing engineer turned multifamily real estate investor. This is the show where I interview multifamily real estate investors and discuss how they found their rhythm and created their own sound investments. But before I introduce today's guest, I want to remind you that this show is brought to you by Nightly Productions. If you already have a platform, podcast, YouTube channel, and you're ready to create more content that breaks the noise, be sure to check out Nightly Productions, find out how they can help you on creating content and stop wasting time on content that doesn't uh, deliver. For today's guest, I have a, I have a rock star here. I've seen him in so many different places, especially on LinkedIn. He is a powerhouse with property owners tax savings. As business director of Madison Specs, a national cost segregation leader, he has assisted clients in saving tens of millions of dollars in taxes through cost segregation. He is known as the cost segregation king. And those tens of millions of dollars, that's actually just him. That's not even Madison Specs as a whole. He has a background in teaching and a passion for real estate and helping others. He's a real estate investor and host of the top podcast wise advice please give a warm welcome to yona wise ah oh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh wow thank you thank you so much great to be here taylor it's a pleasure it's a wonderful introduction i appreciate you you know having me on the show this is i always love as you know getting on podcasts talking to different people and um see where the conversation takes us yeah you know and and it's an honor to to have you come on to the show like like i said i've seen you and so many different places. And so what's funny is when I first started like learning about this industry, and granted, like I'm still in and so the beginning stages, I always thought that it'd be really cool to like have a conversation with you. But I always felt like so much of a newbie that I didn't even know like the right questions asked. So kind of seeing this come full circle and recording with you is, is honestly just a, it's a blessing to me. So, so thank you for, for coming on. Oh, that's uh, great. Yeah. Yeah. Now, but but before we begin, you know, aside from just like the quick little intro uh, that I've had, I would love to know, like, how did you get started within cost segregation? Then we can actually dive into cost segregation itself and what it actually is. Yeah, I mean, it really is almost, it was, I like to think of it as just kind of divine providence. I, I had no intention, like I didn't get, you know, grow up thinking I was going to be a cost segregation expert <laughs> by any means, right? I, I had no idea. In fact, for, you know, the better part of the first half of my life, I had no interest in anything like business or anything whatsoever. I mean, I'm not the quintessential entrepreneur that started out, you know, selling stuff when I was a kid, nothing. I was, you know, kind of involved in uh, things that I enjoyed. I was very involved in sports when I was younger and, you know, learning has always been a passion of mine. Teaching has been a passion of mine. And so that's what I did for a good portion of my life as, as a teacher. But a certain point about five, six years ago, I had some, you know, major life events it happened and I needed something else. You know, income was just not hitting it, a teacher's salary and just whatever it was. I had a, thank God, growing family. And I just decided, you know what? It's worth my time to look into and see what else is out there. So I got involved in a number of things within the commercial real estate industry. First, as a, as a mortgage broker, just learning from a friend of mine who had been doing it for years. 
and then as a uh, as a broker trying to do some residential properties we did a couple of fix and flips together just trying to get my feet wet and everything and then this cost segregation thing came up in discussion and the company that I worked for Madison you know uh, they had an opening and a friend of mine introduced me to uh, the person who was basically the the manager the you know the director of that company and it, we just hit it off. It was like, yeah, this is a perfect opportunity. And I found very quickly what they were looking for was really something that fit very much my background in teaching and education. And so it wasn't necessarily, you know, they were looking for engineers and accountants because I don't have any background in that whatsoever. But um, that's what the actual consideration involves. It involves accounting, it involves engineering, but you still need what the, you know, the vital component of that is to make people aware that such a thing even exists and, and what the benefits are and you know, whether it's worth it for them to look into or not. So that's kind of where I got my foot in the door. And doing such, because I have that you know, thirst for, for learning and a background in teaching, I pick up things really quickly and I'm able to kind of convert them into, okay, take something very complex and be able to translate that and explain it a very, very simplistic or very, you know, easy to understand level for anyone. Now, you know, now, since we're talking about explaining concepts in a simplistic way, not going to lie, the cost segregation is is pretty daunting, <laughs> at least for me, when I was first learning about it, I would love to, if we can dive in, is what is cost segregation? <laughs> well, it's, it is a little bit daunting because it's, it's complicated. It involves accounting. And I think what happens for most people when they hear taxes, they're like brains shut off. Like, you know, it's, it's really, it's phenomenal. It's a phenomenon, but what it is, and especially if you're in the real estate business, you're in the real estate industry, you need to know what this is because it's so important. It can literally save you thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, literally. So what is it? It is a very advanced form of depreciation. That's it. So depreciation is a tax deduction that you get when you buy a property. If you buy a commercial property, even if it's residential, but it's not your personal residence, if it's a rental property, okay, that's what you mean by you know commercial. If it's something that's being rented out, you actually get a tax deduction. You're allowed to write off from your income tax the entire value of that property, okay, which is crazy. It doesn't make any sense. But the you know the tax code has been set up in such a way, unfortunately, to kind of benefit, or, or fortunately, I guess, for real estate investors to benefit people who invest in real estate. And so that's one of those things that says you bought a property. Now you get to actually write off that entire value of that property, but over a long period of time. And that's called depreciation deduction. It doesn't mean like the word sounds. It's based on the concept that depreciation means things go down in value as time goes on, right? But that's not what depreciation is. It's just a tax deduction based on that concept. So when you buy a property from day one, Based on your purchase price, you're allowed to now take every single year for either a 27 and a half year for residential or 39 year period for commercial properties, you take a little bit deduction every single year. Okay. So that's depreciation in a nutshell. Okay. Now that you understand or you heard, maybe you know what that is already. If you have a rental property, cost segregation, all it is, is breaking down the property into different components from an engineering standpoint and then saying, oh, wow. Yes, there's a whole property, but in it are different components. And each of those individual components actually have a different lifespan that they depreciate over. So for example, furniture or appliances, fixtures, anything in the property that's non-structural actually depreciates on a five-year schedule, which means instead of taking the value of that 
over and taking a tax deduction over a 27 year period, you can literally take the value of those components over a five year period. Now, you know, something I wanted to highlight and emphasize it because with depreciation and, and having the value go down, can we talk about like the because because originally, like when I thought like eventually, like the value of the property is going to be going up. Like, What are the in depreciation exactly. sounds like a bad thing. So, I mean, uh, can we talk about the differences between appreciation and depreciation where that that factors into play? Absolutely. And you're absolutely right. Real estate is intrinsically one of those things that just goes up over time. That's called appreciation, something going up in value. And like we said, depreciation literally means something is going down in value as time is going on, right? But based on the tax deduction, it's really just, a it's conceptually, okay? So things are, real estate is actually not going down intrinsically, but your deduction is based on that principle that, well, the IRS says, if you buy a building, it's gonna be going down in value. Like some of those things in the property actually do have a useful life and need to be replaced over a certain period of time. Like, you know, the roof you need to replace every 10, 15, 20 years, whatever, right? Carpeting, you're going to pull out every five, 10 years. So there are things that do depreciate in that regard that you're going to replace them. But otherwise, the concept of depreciation, it's a misnomer to think that depreciation means that something's going down in value. Because from a tax perspective, what we're talking about all this time is, again, it's just a borrowed term. Just a borrowed term. Okay. And, you know, something I wanted to touch on as well is with, I mean, to be able to use a cost segregation study, though, it, from my understanding, it would also need to be more for value add opportunities and versus like new development opportunities. No, just, I'm shaking. Yeah, I'm shaking my head because it, yeah. it, it can be for anything. It really can. Mm, um, there interesting. Are so many. Yeah, there are so many because it's, um, it's, it's based on your purchase price and depreciation starts, it begins when you buy a property or when you develop a property and place it into service, either one. But it's, again, I just want to go back to this fact. It's not an intrinsic thing on the property. It's totally a borrowed term. So you may have bought a building that was built in 1924, okay? And your depreciation deduction starts over today, day one, right? Your 27 years, 27 and a half years starts today in 2021 when you buy the property. Interesting. So, yeah. Ah, Hmm. And it's based on your purchase price, how much you paid for it. So let's take an example. Let's say you bought a property, you know, five years ago for a million dollars. Okay. You were taking depreciation deductions every year based on that million dollar purchase price. Now you go ahead and sell the property today, right? Five years later for $2 million. That new owner gets to start over a new depreciation schedule, which means he's taking deductions of $2 million over a 27 year period. And now if he two years later turns around and sells it for $5 million, that new owner is gonna start a new depreciation schedule based on $5 million and taking a, uh, you know, a fraction of that every year. Uh, so resets and- uh, Resets on new ownership. Resets on new ownership. And then with the cost segregation study, you can accelerate that schedule into 15 years versus, or however many years versus the 27 and a half exactly. years of standard. Okay. Exactly. And just to make sure, and and just to make sure that I'm understanding this as well, like let's let's use a, a syndication for example, like a, a value add property. So, let's say a five year hold, right? I mean, one of the one of the big selling benefits of a syndication and for passive investors are the tax benefits, and you know, operators talking about performing cost segregation study to help lower their taxable passive income. So, so from what I'm understanding, they could be experiencing 
the benefits of a cost segregation study even after they finish the renovations. So like if they finish renovations by year two, refinance it and then plan on holding it for an extra three years after year two, because it's not based on intrinsic value, then they're still able to experience the benefits of the cost segregation of that study. Right. Wow, I feel like so I'm in class right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's like, a, that's great. It. No, you, <laughs> internalizing it, repeating it back. I mean, that's really the way that you're going to learn it best. And I think what 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 you said there is something really important I want to unpack because there's a lot in there, okay? And for anyone listening to this, that maybe this is the first time you're hearing the concept, there's a lot in here. So I want to try to break it down and explain it. And we're not going to cover everything at all, but <laughs> at least you'll have you know the basic no- wherewithal to know about what this is um, so you can inquire and ask more questions. The depreciation deduction that you get is based on two things, okay? It's based, number one, on the purchase price, how much you actually spent. And really, that's the key. And if you do any additions of capital improvements, whatever money is spent to put into the property is also depreciated, okay? Which means you can now take that as a tax deduction as well. However, it's not based on intrinsic value. Again, if it's if it's refinanced, if it gets appraised for much more money, that doesn't affect your depreciation deduction, okay? And that's an important thing to remember. But yeah, you can do the depreciation on the property as soon as you acquire it. Do the cost segregation study, which again, is gonna allocate the depreciation into different categories, each asset, each individual component in that property, like I said, personal property, furniture, fixtures, mm-hmm. carpeting, cabinets, anything that's non-structural is on a five-year schedule. You can take the value of that over five years. There's stuff outside the building called landscaping, uh, land improvements, pavements, anything that's on the property that's not, uh, again, not structural, but it's outside the property, outside the building, land improvements, <clears throat> excuse me, 15-year schedule. So we're going to be allocating the total purchase price into these different components, okay? So that's the first thing you do. When you go ahead, and you can do that right away in the first year, even as soon as you buy a property, you can get that cost segregation done to allocate the costs, segregate those costs into different categories, take the depreciation of each component faster. That's what the cost segregation study does. Now, when you go and do the improvements, depending on what it is and how much it is, obviously that's going to depend on how much more benefit you're going to get from the depreciation of those improvements. Okay. So there's two stages. Again, first you start with just the acquisition. When you buy a new property, that entire value, excuse me, that purchase, you can now take as depreciation. So you can get it done straight away in that first year. And like you said, this is going to benefit investors because this goes directly to offset your income whatever income that you have from your property, from passive income, this passive deduction of depreciation is going to go to offset that. And and just to make it clear, because you know, I was having this conversation with another fellow investor. Now, when we say offset, offset our income, it's not their active income. If they're like, let's like, say a lot of these passive investors or business owners or have a W-2 job, they're only offsetting their passive income based on that property. Is that correct? Just, Correct. Okay. So there, are, there's a yeah. There are a lot of different rules uh, regarding mm-hmm. this. There's things called the passive loss limitations, which essentially means that you have passive income, which is coming from generally rental property income, any mm-hmm. rental investments that you have. That's considered passive income. That's treated separately than your active income, your W two income, or you know active business income. So passive uh, depreciation is a passive deduction. So that's going to go and be used against your passive income. Passive. Okay? Okay. There are there are cases and scenarios where any extra depreciation that you have beyond your passive income 
um, any passive deductions you have that's called passive losses beyond your actual income. Let's say you had, you, know, you made $50,000 from your rental property. And because of cost creation, you got $100,000 of depreciation deductions in that year. That extra $50,000 of losses, usually for most people, especially if you have a W-2 job, just carry forward. They can be, it can be used next year, but you have a limitation. You cannot use it in the current year against any other income you have. There are certain uh-huh. exceptions to that. And the most prevalent exception to that is if you are a real estate professional, okay? And without getting into this too deeply, (laughs) ask your accountant about this, but the real estate professional status, often referred to as REPS for the acronym of real estate professional status, allows you to literally use those extra depreciation deductions to offset your ordinary income, okay? You or your spouse's ordinary income. So that means you can have an extra, in that scenario, that extra $50,000, can now be used against you know any ordinary income you have. So if you're a broker, if you're flipping houses, if you're doing wholesaling, if you're doing anything in the real estate business and you have active income from the other things, but you also have rentals that are producing these depreciation, you can use that extra losses to go against and lower your income tax liability from your active income as well. Ah, interesting, interesting. Okay. And yeah, I've, I've heard of the real estate professional status that's a very, very long, uh, and also it, not a, necessarily grayer, but not, well, not a, I don't know too many people that have that status in the first place. And I feel like it, it takes a lot to get to that status as well. But, you know, just quick question off the bat. So with the passive loss that uh, you mentioned that like, let's use your example with a hundred thousand and you write, you can write off 50,000 for that first year. How long does that extra 50,000 carry on to? Like, are you able to benefit that like two years from now, three years from now, or, you know? It, yeah, it carries forward indefinitely, either until yeah. that extra, those losses are used up or until you sell the property. Uh, Cause at, at that point it's released. Got it. Okay. Okay. And, you know, you brought up a, an interesting point and I, I saw you post this on LinkedIn as well. And it, it was a question that you asked was why didn't my CPA tell me about this. And so uh, I'm curious to know, like, does that happen often? Like, are there a lot of CPAs that don't necessarily know about cost segregation? Yeah, it is. It's pretty amazing. I mean, I've spoken to literally over a thousand CPAs in the past few years, and I'm, I'm no longer surprised to find those that really have no idea what this is. And it is, it is, (laughs) it's, it is surprising to me. I'm just not surprised anymore just because of the, how common it is, you know, it comes from the tax code. This is not some other outside strategy that's outside of the the scope of the tax code. Just happens to be that the majority of accountants are not basically equipped or they're not specialized in real estate. And so in order to know all the different, I mean, you think of of a comparison between like, you know, a general practitioner, a physician, and then you have, you know, a, you know, whatever kind of well, you know, oral surgeon or whatever it is, uh, heart surgeon, these specialists that are in all different types of areas of medicine, the general practitioner probably, you know, he may know, he may have heard of it, right? He may have heard mm-hmm. of it. And he knows maybe something like that, but he's not an expert. Doesn't doesn't know the ins and outs of those special areas whatsoever. So that so too with cost segregation, it is a specialized area within the tax code. However, most accountants are not equipped to, to do it because again, the, it requires the engineering component to it. Uh, which is why you really need an outside source, you know, a third party to do that. Now, now for these uh, people that are just stepping into the multifamily real estate industry then, and let's say that their CPA doesn't necessarily know about cost segregation, do you think that they should go find one that 
does then and that sort of specializes with other real estate investors or can someone be able to like teach that CPA and into, <laughs> into what what this is? <laughs> you know, um, I've seen it happen where you'll have people just, you know, sharing with their CPAs and <laughs> and this information is <laughs> like, oh yeah, 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 I, I guess so, right? That makes sense. But oftentimes we'll, we'll get pushback and we literally get people like, is this legit? Is this real? And like, wow, you know, a CPA really doesn't know that. So if you are someone who's planning on, you know, accelerating in the real estate profession, and your plan is to be, you know, have a lot of rental income, income, rental properties, portfolio, whatever, it behooves you to have an accountant that knows real estate taxation because there are so many benefits and consideration is just one of them mm-hmm. within real estate field specifically that you can you know benefit from by just having knowing all those extra little uh things that can just save you money hmm. now you know with this cost segregation study you know i'm not gonna lie like first first off off the bat it sounds like it, it can be a little bit expensive um to perform a cost segregation study and i'm sure that there are certain cases where it makes sense and it doesn't make sense and so you know i would love to know you know, just some of the criteria of like, when should a person be reaching out to someone like yourself? Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it, it's actually not as expensive as one might think. Um, hmm. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there. I mean, I've come across articles like blog posts and things like that where quoting, it's like, you know, it's only worth it for very large commercial properties because it costs, you know, anywhere from 10 to $20,000 or something. And that's just wrong. It's, it's not true. So the first thing we always do uh, when we, you know, someone reaches out, we'll run a free analysis, a feasibility analysis, basically an estimate to show a real estate owner what the potential tax benefits would be by doing the consideration versus I'm showing on kind of graphs and charts the difference between that and if they just took regular, ordinary straight line depreciation, which again is just taking that that um, overall price over a 27 and a half year period. Okay. So that we always do upfront and we'll quote, tell you exactly how much that will cost to do it. We have a, a sliding scale based on the type of property it is, the square footage has nothing to do with the purchase price or the actual tax benefits. It's not contingent on that whatsoever. So typically speaking, we're, we're talking about somewhere between average cost of any property is usually between three to $6,000. Okay. Which means is not even, it's not even, I mean, questionable for a, a million dollar property. And I usually say anything over a half a million dollars is worthwhile because think about it. If you have a half a million dollar purchase price, you're going to be looking at a minimum of 50,000, right? $50,000 of tax benefit, 50 to a hundred thousand dollars of tax benefit. That's just usually how it works out with the percentages. So to pay a few thousand dollars to get that type of tax benefit is, is a no brainer for most people. And the bigger the purchase price, you know, it's a, it's a percentage. So that's going to continue to increase proportionate to the purchase price. If you have a $10 million building and you're getting 10 to 20% of that as a tax benefit, you're talking about, you know, a million dollars, right? To $2 million of tax benefit. Again, same price, maybe four or $5,000 to get it done. It's, it's a no brainer. Mm, got it. I, you know, now, I, I just I just have to ask too because you know you mentioned the the five hundred thousand number and that was just like a number that stuck in my head now in higher valued markets such as like the Bay Area where you know maybe a single family home costs like seven hundred or eight hundred but the the type of property is still pretty small in comparison like I, I mean would you still recommend a cost segregation study like for let's say a single family home that costs that much. 
Certainly. I mean, if it's uh, even if it's a single family home, it can still be beneficial. And we're getting a lot lately. I mean, you don't even have to go to San Francisco. We're getting uh, <laughs> very common right now in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. Okay. There are these Airbnbs, cabins that are hot. I mean, it's an extremely hot market over there. We're getting people um, and there's a, a great brokerage out there, the short-term shop that they're just killing it and selling these cabins. And it's, it is the number one, the highest, one of the biggest tourist um, attractions in the country, which is something I learned recently, but just Google it, Smoky Mountains. It gets, it's a national park. Okay. And it gets more visitors. Like it gets like 12 million visitors a year to this national park. And there are barely any hotels in the area. So what do people do? They rent cabins, like these Airbnb cabins. And so this has become a very big trend. And so because of that, these properties are, you know, are on fire, right? So people are buying them. Yeah, exactly. Like I just spoke to someone yesterday who bought a cabin for $1.5 million. I mean, yeah, it's a huge cabin. It's like, it's a big cabin, but it's, you know, can, but again, they're, it's incredible. But yes, to going back to your question, even on a single family, it can definitely make sense. Hmm. Got it. Got it. Got it. Now, you know, I would love to know the cases where it does not make sense and when they should not be reaching out to you. Um, and maybe this, maybe this is a simple answer, but you know, I'd just love to get your take on that. It's worthwhile reaching out anytime. anytime. I, I truly think because you never know. And to educate yourself and to see the numbers and we'll run the free estimate no matter what. I mean, if a single family, but the usual case where it's not going to make sense are a few cases. Number one, if you're planning on holding property for a very short term, so between one to less than two years, I would say it usually doesn't make sense. Part of the reason why is because when you sell a property, you have something called depreciation recapture tax. And that is a tax anytime you sell a property, but that makes you, you have a subject to a tax of the amount of depreciation that you took. So if you took $100,000 of depreciation, then you now are taxed at 25% on that $100,000. So if you took extra depreciation, you're just going to be taxed on more on the sale. Similar to capital gains tax, it's called unrealized gain because you actually, you took that deduction earlier, so you didn't pay income tax beforehand. Now you're going to be taxed later, albeit a lesser amount. But if you don't have other properties to offset that, then it probably doesn't make sense to just do a quick cost and then sell the property the next year. Got it. Okay. So, and there's a lot in there. I don't want, you know, we can break that down, but, um, but that's usually the number one case. And the second thing is really when you just, you don't have any taxable income, right? Or your ordinary depreciation deduction, albeit small, is enough to offset the income from your property, right? If you have a lot of expenses, for example, maybe you just, you did a lot of renovations and you had a lot of write-offs to begin with and your property's not making money, you don't need those extra deductions. It doesn't make sense, right? Why would you pay money to do this cost variation study if you can't actually use the benefit? Use the benefit. Okay. So at the end of the day, it is still case by case, but even then you should still be reaching out regardless, just to see where you're at. And you know, if, if there are benefits that, that you may not be seeing up front. Now, you know, I can't imagine there's, there's two things I would want to touch on, but before we go into one of the other topics I was thinking of, I can't imagine uh, someone doing a cost segregation by themselves. Like let's say an engineer, <laughs> uh, an engineer, like accountants, uh, wants to do so they could, or could they do it by themselves? Because of the, I mean, the, the IRS has very strict rules when it comes to what's called, you know, the cost segregation audit techniques guide, hmm. you know, and anything you're dealing with taxation, you want to make sure you're doing it exactly right. So part of the actual tax code 
has rules, right? Called the, these audit guide. And part okay. of that is there, there's a whole like list of things that need to go into this study. So it's not just about coming up with like a number, like any accountant can just make up the number for depreciation, right? And just stick it in there. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend doing that. But again, it's not something that can be done because there are so many other things. There's a whole numbering system besides the fact that it requires the engineer component to it. So yeah, if you hired an engineer that had a good grasp of the tax code and then put together the study, had all the background and was able to <laughs> you know, put everything in there that the IRS requires, then you could probably do it on your own. If you you know have a very high tolerance for risk, you know, then, you know, a person could, again, I'm not recommending someone do this, but if you have no worry of ever getting audited, then, you know, you could theoretically come up with some numbers uh, based on some research and figuring it out, okay, how much are these individual components? How much does the furniture cost, et cetera? There's a way to kind of break it down to get some benefit, but again, you're not going to maximize it because you're not using the the proper, the proper tools. Mm. Got it. Got it. Got it. Now, you know, for, for some of these property owners then that are just learning about this and uh, want to get involved with it a little bit more, but they still don't know much about it. Like what is your way of being able to, I guess, like, let's say like vet um, a, a cost segregation study firm. Is that, is that what they call it? Cost segregation study firm? Cost segregation yeah, firm. Cost segregation yeah, sure. firm. yeah. All right, cool. <laughs> yeah. So, so what are some of the ways that we could, we could vet like a, a someone, uh, a company that is, if we're new to the space. Yeah, there's, I mean, you want to make sure, number one, that they have that dual component of, you know, the engineering component is the most important part. There are accounting firms out there, out there that kind of do this. And again, they may be comfortable with their own experiences um, of doing it, but they're not necessarily going to be uh, doing it the right way with the engineer a study. So that's the number one thing. You want to make sure they have audit protection, which means that they have experience going through audits. And if they have ever had questions raised on their conservation studies, you want to make sure that they've they've passed and they will stand behind their work on you, right? Because you're doing right. something, you're creating a huge amount of deductions. And hopefully with this, for a lot of people paying little to no taxes because of it. I mean, I have hundreds of clients and a lot of them pay zero income tax, okay? And are millionaires. So that's kind of the question where, like, how can it be? Like, you know, how can it be Donald Trump, or whatever, like didn't pay any taxes or whatever? Well, it's just because of real estate and the rules that are there in the tax code that you have smart accountants uh, that take take advantage of these things. So that being said, th- those are two really important factors. I would say another thing is you want to, you know, see if they are, um, there's no real license for this whatsoever. Okay. I mean, the IRS okay. requires there to be all the components that are in the conservation audit techniques guide, but there's no specific like licensure for these engineers. It's just something someone that has experience in doing this. And they know the tax code usually have to have a background in construction engineering just to understand how things work, but pretty much it. I mean, there's there's a lot that goes into it. I would say do your research, ask, ask friends, ask uh, you know, fellow real estate investors what their experiences have been, like most vendors out there. You want to know that they have good service and that they uh, you know, competitive, et cetera. Got it. You know, now bringing this back and kind of switching gears just a little bit. I mean, something that I am extremely impressed with, especially with you, is is the fact that you're able to give so much value, like just right, 
right in the in the forefront. I mean, whether it's an estimation or on LinkedIn where you're helping other people like connect with other people that they're looking for. And, you know, that is some, some the, you're someone that I look up to and I want to be able to be that person to provide value for, for others. But I was just wondering, like, where did that really come from? Like, did, did that come from like your teaching background where you're always uh, thinking about like the, the benefits of the student? Well, and also to note that you even put the, the background of the, the Golden Gate Bridge too, knowing that I'm from the Bay Area. So even like, just like the small little things like make a difference. So I, you know, I was wondering where that really came from. I mean, I think it has a lot to just do, you know, with with my background, with my upbringing. You're absolutely right. The teacher in me, right, is always looking out to try to add value, to try to give benefit to to everyone I come in contact with. So there's there's a lot to be said on that subject. I mean, I think it has a lot to do with my my world view, you know, kind of my world outlook. Being a, a religious uh, Jewish person, I think that's really kind of our modus operandi is just how can we give back? Like, how can we do for mm-hmm. others? Like not thinking about ourselves as much. How can I do it? How can every interaction I have with someone else leave them better than they were before we met? And, you know, that's what's, that's, what's been so interesting within this uh, industry. And it's like with the people that I've just met, and maybe it's not just this, this industry, of course, and I'm sure it's like everywhere in a lot of different industries, but everyone seems to be so like genuinely nice and like helpful to give out information just because in my perception was a lot of people were competitive and didn't really want to give out right. their secrets. Yeah. I think, you know, it has also a lot to do with you know, the abundance mindset. And I think mm-hmm. people who are entrepreneurs and the majority of people that are kind of in the real estate business are entrepreneurs, right? They're people that they're going into, I mean, every real estate property is an investment and it's not just an investment, but it's a business into itself, right? If you own a multifamily property, that's a business. Um, and so small business owners, entrepreneurs in general have this, a lot of have a kind of like a growth mindset and you're right within the multifamily community, especially I've seen this, you know, time and time again, that there's just people willing to share and willing to give out what they know to teach it to others or to share information or to just help other people out. Because again, it's that abundance mindset, knowing that whatever I'm going to doing, what do you call it? Karma or just putting it out there in the world it's going to come back to you and you want to kind of create that environment and those people around you. Uh, and it's a culture. It really is. It has to, you're creating that, that kind of community that is a, a place where everyone, everyone can benefit. I mean, there's enough to go around, right? There's enough out there for everyone to get a piece of something. Mm. And, and, you know, I want to highlight that just the word community, because you know, when, when I see your LinkedIn post, I just see so many people, they, commenting, reacting, bringing in their friends. And it, it's really cool just to see like what you've been able to create from uh, your brands and from your story and from, from your profession. And, you know, it's, you know, I just, I just have to comp- compliment you and they'd say like, it's really cool to see how many interactions that you've been, been getting and seeing how many other people are willing, willing to help. So. Yeah. I mean, it takes time. It definitely, it's a lot of time and effort also. I mean, that shouldn't be taken lightly there. The more, and I, I'm very big on networking, as you know, and I think online, the, the social media, what it allows to do is just to kind of create those communities, create that networking experience that you would have if you went to networking events, conferences, and things like that. It's about a reputation, you know, it's about having a good name, but it's also about uh, creating value for others. Like, how can you just help other people, bring people together, connect people, right? That's a big part of it as well, right? How can I make, you know, make big connections, help other people out where, you know, they may not... They might not know someone, right? You find out all the time people asking, oh, can anyone recommend, uh, you know, a plumber in uh, in Nebraska? Or can anyone, you know, recommend a, 
whatever, a mortgage broker. And so if you've had an experience with someone, you want to help, you know, you're helping two people at once because you're helping the person who is requesting. You're also helping that business owner that you know that can be provide that service and do it professionally. And so referrals are obviously the biggest thing when it comes to, right? I mean, think about when you were like a DJ, right? If someone's looking, they need a DJ for a party or something like that, right? If someone that you serviced once, right, comes and tells their friend, oh, I loved Taylor, what he did, they're going to use you, right, to, mm. you know, <laughs> so much more than just, you know, a random person that they come across. Got it. Got it. Got it. And so, you know, with, with someone that is new, then like it, that may not have the the background in real estate, may not have uh, the expertise in, in a specific area, there's still value to be added by even introducing somebody else or uh, referring somebody or, you know, just helping them in any way, shape that they can. Because I mean, like for me, I thought that I needed to add like an immense amount of value and like be an expert in just like this one thing and and that's going to be able to be like, have my foot in the door. Yeah. But from what you're saying, like even, even the smallest little things do make a difference in how people experience you. Yeah. Cool. So, you know, now moving forward, then what's, what's next for Yona? I mean, what's, what are you focusing on now? Yeah, thank God the the cost segregation business is great. The real estate market is continuing to flourish. And so there are a lot of deals happening, which means, you know, we have a tremendous amount of business. We've grown a lot as a company over the past several years and continue. So that's keeping me extremely busy <laughs> on, on the one hand. Uh, I have a, a family, you know, six kids. So that keeps me busy on the other hand. And on top of that, kind of for me moving forward is I'm really starting to see the fruits of, you know, of real estate investing personally, as, as I've kind of grown over the past several years in this mm-hmm. space. And really strongly, you know, considering and looking for deals on my own, you know, partners to, to partner up with, to take down bigger deals, to kind of get involved more on the actual ownership side, as opposed to, you know, just the, the kind of role I've had in the past. Awesome. Awesome. And, you know, it, with, with that being said, then something that I like to ask all my guests, you know, now with what you're focusing on now and after all your hard work and with uh, your the cost segregation side, and then also with the family side, what is the what is the legacy that you want to uh, leave on the world? Like what is yeah? What does that look like? I think it's a lot to do with what I said before. You know, if if every interaction that I have with people kind of leaves them better than they were beforehand, right? So on a very small scale, that's literally every individual interaction. But on a bigger scale, you know, if I can give back in a bigger way to the world, uh, I think that's the legacy. Awesome. Now, if people want to get a hold of you, how can they get in touch? Best way, you can actually find me on LinkedIn. I'm very active there. Check that definitely more than my email. So you can uh, <laughs> uh, you can reach out to me there, put a little message that you saw, you heard this or saw this on, on Taylor's podcast. I'd love that. You can also go to yonaweiss.com. So just my name, Y-O-N-A-H-W-E-I-S-S. And um, yeah, feel free to reach out. And those will be in the show notes and everyone, please definitely reach out to Yona. He, he, I've learned absolutely so much from, from this. I, I definitely came out of this conversation a lot smarter and also with, with more questions too. So as, as students should always have more yeah. questions. <laughs> but thank you so much again, Yona, for, for hopping in. Uh, I'm excited to have the action items episode. We're actually going to go over some of the components within a cost segregation study Um, and get into a little bit more of the nitty gritty details. So stay tuned for Friday. But thank you again so much, Yona, for for joining us on uh, on this morning. Pleasure. Thank you again, Taylor. 
Thanks for listening to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. If you got any value out of this episode, I'd greatly appreciate if you head over to iTunes, leave a rating and review the show, which will help more people receive that same value. If you're looking to connect and talk more about multifamily real estate, you can reach me at inrhythmmultifamily.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.